Today, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Pastor George looks at what happens after and discovers that the early church had to go through a period of waiting. Let's listen together. Well, Pastor Connie and I have come to the conclusion of our sermon series focused on who Jesus is. We called it Jesus Christ Supernatural Fusion because you can't understand Jesus without understanding that he is both God and a man, that he is natural and supernatural, and that he is entirely fused in his being between these two essences. That's very complex idea, but we tried to look at all of the events in his life through that prism to get a new insight into this Jesus we call our Savior. As we thought about this, we wanted to follow this up with a series that built on it, and it came to us that we should just follow the natural flow of the New Testament. So we're going to take uh, the founding of the church, the establishment of the church, as our sermon series. And we're going to call it um, the Newborn Church. The Newborn Church. And we're going to try to get a feel for what was the essence of this church. What made it into the church that continued the work of Jesus. And we're going to do this by focusing our attention on an historical writing which in our gospel, in our New Testament, is two different books, but really is a continuation. The newborn church also is a kind of supernatural fusion. And just as Jesus was totally human, but was also totally divine, the church, ideally, essentially, the church would also be a totally human, and also totally divine. Now, the church fails to be all of that, but we're going to see, especially in this week and next week, uh, how uh, this is dramatically uh, established by Luke. And during the next 12 weeks, we'll look at the early church and we'll see what were the most striking characteristics about the church. Each week, we'll focus on one facet, that makes the church the church. And then we'll look about how that same facet expresses itself throughout church history and how it expresses itself in our church in 2021 and in our lives as believers in the modern world. I hope this will bring things to life for all of us. Each week, we'll try to follow that one characteristic. And today, the characteristic that we're following is the very first thing we learn about the church. And it's a very strange thing. The very first thing we learn about the church is that it is waiting. The first thing that happens is Jesus asks them to wait. The newborn church is a waiting church. Hang with me as I try to establish this through Luke and Acts. Let's begin with the first four verses of Acts. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning 
until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. That's the first thing we know about the church. But to wait there for the promise of the Father. The resurrected Jesus finally gives his excited followers their action plan. And right at the top of the action list is waiting. Don't you love that? Don't you love to be told to wait? Hello. Yes, please hold. Click. And a half hour later, you're still hold, holding. I, one of the first things that came to my mind when I realized this theme was going to be the first thing about the church we looked at was I have just recently become reacquainted with the famous play called Waiting for Godot. Now, I first learned that as Waiting for Godot, but I found that that's a mispronunciation that is kind of an Americanization. The author who was uh, Irish and lived most of his life in Paris actually intended it to be pronounced Godot. And uh, Samuel Beckett is the author. He uh, wrote this in the mid-50s. And it, it's a very enigmatic play. Uh, and, it, 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 you know, when you see Waiting for Godot or even more Waiting for Godot, you think about God. At least I did. But that's not what Beckett has in mind. Nobody knows for sure what Beckett has in mind. The opening line, there are two men. All you see on stage are these two men. They're there all the way through the two and a half hours. These two men are standing under a tree, kind of a bedraggled, nondescript tree. And these two men and the tree are the only characters. Now, there are a couple of men, other men who appear, and also a boy later on, but they have very small parts. It's mostly a conversation between these two men. And the opening line of the play is, nothing to be done. And then for two and a half hours, they do nothing. <laughs> That's basically what happens. They talk about the futility of life. They are waiting for something to happen. And the something to happen is a person that they're waiting to come. They don't know much about this mysterious Godot. And uh, I think because, you know, Beckett grew up uh, as an Irish Catholic, he knew quite well what he was doing and making the name sound like the word God and makes everyone think about all kinds of things. Are we, are we just waiting for God? Well, waiting for sure. And in between the beginning of the play, in which the opening line is nothing to be done, at the end, the two of them agree they've come day after day for 50 years and had this conversation under the tree. And the two of them decide that maybe they shouldn't walk together anymore. They should go their own way and said, yeah, well, shall we go? Yes, let's go. And then they don't. And that's how the play ends. They're still standing next to each other under the same tree.
two hours of no progress. It's like the early church waiting, waiting 40 days, Luke and Acts tell us. 40 days they waited with no progress. And you, what have you waited? 50 years with no progress? Does it seem that way sometimes? Well, the play will give you a lot to think about. Waiting as the first, if you will, action that the early church took uh, was very, very important. And I'd like to walk you through the post-resurrection appearances when Jesus interacted with the church so that you can see how this waiting period, it was kind of like the nine months of pregnancy, but it was 40 days, uh, bringing forth a birth, bringing forth the newborn church. Let's begin with Luke 24 and verse 13. This is the first appearance after Jesus, the tomb was found open, and then there was a brief encounter between him and a couple of women. They passed the word on to others. Nobody quite believed it. And here in Luke 24, verse 13, is the first, uh, the next encounter after that. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Now this is very important because it's the first of several times in the passages we're going to read today, that you find the disciples were talking a lot with each other. They were comparing notes. They were saying, did he really say that? Do you remember when this happened? Do you remember how he looked when he led us here? All the recollections that they were having, and they were trying to puzzle through what it meant, and they were not doing it just one by one, but they were doing it together. And they were trying to develop a, a clear group memory of Jesus, who was now, as far as they were concerned, gone from them. And while they were talking, verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near them, and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We don't know whether he looked different, but, you know, when you're not totally not, I, I once met my brother in a place I didn't expect him, and it took me about 10 seconds to realize it was my brother. And their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? Well, they stood still. They looked sad. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? So they took the bait. They talked with him through the things they had experienced and how they had watched their, their leader uh, crucified and then buried him. And then mysteriously, somebody they believed had stolen his body and uh, they still didn't recognize Jesus. And then in verse 25, he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah would suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Now, I mean, that must have been a glorious lecture. I mean, it was kind of like a rabbi teaching his followers, but with authority. And notice he says, beginning with Moses, those are the first books of the Bible. And then all the prophets. And he interpreted the things about himself in all the scriptures. Now, if Luke means that literally, um, that must have been quite a long conversation. And he shared with them the Old Testament scriptures that they were brought up on, which are even much, uh, much more uh, voluminous than the New Testament books that we have today. But, but he knew them inside out and he shared them in a way that gave them a new insight in the meaning and, and it focused on him, on what he had come to do, on who he was and what he was now about to do. They still didn't recognize him. I mean, they saw he was a smart person and he had a lot to tell them, but they still didn't know who it was. Listen, verse 30. When he was at the tape, they invited him home and they were interested in continuing the conversation. And he was at the table with them he took bread. It sounds like the Lord's Supper, which had happened just about a week before, or a few days before. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Wow. And then he vanished from their sight. Wait, wait, wait. What kind of a game is this? What... The big revelation came, and now what do we have? More waiting. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together, all the key leaders of the church. And they were saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And he appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road. And listen to this, how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. You know, preachers ever since have talked about the wonder that when we break the bread at the Lord's table, he becomes real to us in a new way. That is kind of a miraculous revelation. Well, they got it. Now they had what they needed, right? No. Still, they waited. What else could they do? They, they hardly could keep up with what was going on. They didn't understand what Jesus was telling them. It was, it's like too much. It was overwhelming. So then, while it was still buzzing about all of this, Jesus appeared to the whole group, verse 36. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Listen, this is a wonderful contrast. Right after that, they were startled and terrified. <laughs> did, you ever have, did you ever have a feeling that Jesus was saying peace and you were scared, silly? Well, that was their experience. And, and they thought they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you frightened? And who, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is myself. Touch me and see. 
This seems to be a, a, a very intense attempt by Jesus to establish the reality of the resurrection, the reality that this is really him. And a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Now, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Well, that was kind of like the climactic moment of identification that this is truly him. This is no ghost. Look, he ate that fish. He didn't need it, but he ate it. All of this was designed by Jesus during this waiting time to have them fully accept the fact of who he is and who he has become in his resurrection and to let it sink in. That's what the waiting was all about, to let these truths sink in. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Once again, he teaches them patiently from the Old Testament, which they had, which they knew well and which they believed in with their whole heart. And just as a rabbi would, he patiently laid down God's word to them. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written, the Messiah. This is who he claimed to be, who he proved to be. The Messiah is to suffer. I'm showing you this from the Old Testament now, from the Holy Book, that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Look, it's happened. Verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Whoa, now that's a little bigger than they thought it would be. Um, all nations? Be okay, now he's going to tell them what their role will be. Verse 48, I mean, they wanted to know what their marching orders are. Here they are, 48. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So now go out and do it. Oh, that's not what he says. What did he say? He says, wait. Once again, he says, wait. Verse 49. See, I'm sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Stay in the city. More waiting. They have lots more to learn. So maybe if you'll stay around another few weeks, but verse 50, right after that, he told them to stay in the city and wait longer. Right after that, he, verse 50 says, then he led them out as far as Bethany, Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him. And they worshipped him. But he was gone. He had laid all this on them, and now he's gone. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy.
They returned to start preaching? No, they returned to do more waiting. And verse 53 says, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Not preaching, not winning souls, but blessing God. Now you have to take Luke and Acts and realize they're part of the same message, the same history by Luke. So there's some overlap. And when he moves from the end of the gospel, which we've just read, into the beginning of the book of Acts of the Apostles, we see a, a repeat of some of the things which he just told, we just read. So in the beginning of Acts, portion that we read earlier, in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to, to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his sufferings, he presented to them alive by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? Remember, this is a repeat of some of the end of, of the like Luke's gospel. So he hasn't yet ascended. Is this the time when you will restore? And he replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods. He's talking about the wait again. Is this the time? Are we done waiting? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I'm not going to tell you how soon this will happen, but when it did, does, you will know it. That's the message he has for them. And then he says, your role as the church, as the group of people I have gathered as my followers, I have called and empowered you to begin my work on earth as the church. So following in verse 8, he says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Ooh. Okay, now that is tough, but I got my bags packed. I have my Amtrak ticket. I'm going to get out there. I have my marching orders. I'm going to the ends of the earth. Nope. More waiting. Verse 13, Jesus had given them this great, wonderful commission. He's told them how he's going to use them for this miraculous new thing, the birth of the church. And then he says in verse 13, when they, it says, when they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, all of these were constantly devoting themselves to preaching the gospel? No. No, they constantly devoted themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. This is as far as we're going to go in our scripture reading today. We're going to 
look at the next climactic chapter in the life of the church next week. But I wanted you to feel, by going through these passages, to just feel the 40 days of waiting. To sense how long it must have seemed, how, how tense the group must have become, how full of questions they were. They were very scared by the mission, but they were also anxious and zealous because they were excited to talk about their Savior who had risen from the dead. Also, I want you to see how important it was for the church to realize what this earthly mission was all about, to meditate on it, to let the words sink in, to reflect on who Jesus was and how he fits into God's historic plan, and to do all of this through this time of waiting. This was not a, a time for impulsiveness. There was no need for urgency. Jesus has it in hand. He'll tell you when to move. And they waited. Next week we'll find out the time of fulfillment. But as you get into church, into church history, oh, you look at the chapters of church history, yeah. You find out that waiting, waiting has been a very hard lesson in the church. Now, waiting was not just for that time in the church's history, but it's something the church always has to do. It's something believers always have to do. But we have, we seem to have a compulsion to act. The, the church has somehow gotten fired up with missionary zeal at times that are not appropriate. Sometimes the church has gotten power and, and the authority and the military might and has taken action way, way ahead of what God intends. They have become the persecutor. They have enforced morality and orthodoxy in many periods of history. And we know how church history is marked by church splits. Well, all of these church splits have partially resulted from people not waiting, from people running ahead with ideas or with uh, uh, gimmicks or with uh, personal agendas that have nothing to do with what God is up to. And so we have churches and churches and churches of every color and every stripe all over the world. And, and these churches, all of them, from the, the church in Rome where the Pope uh, ministers to a little country church in, in East Africa to Adina Baptist Church, all of this uh, cacophony of churches, they are all somehow supernatural fusions they are, they are, but, but sometimes we miss it because the power of the Lord is there, the gospel is there, the, the redemption is there, the miracle is there. That's all from above, but there's also so much humanity there. 
And we let it overwhelm us by not waiting, not waiting for God to direct us. Waiting, waiting. Oh, today, waiting. <laughs> wow. COVID, COVID has us waiting. Has us waiting in lines. Have us waiting for our work and our schools to open. Has us waiting to make connections with our friendships and our family. Has us waiting sometimes with fear as to whether or not we've contracted the disease and how sick we'll get. I mean, it's hard. And we'd like to do something about it, but we feel helpless. And some of us are more anxious to get back to every day. You can feel the tension, how hard it is to to wait. You You can feel what, what Peter felt, you remember when Jesus was being arrested? Well, Peter had to act. He he pulled his sword out and he missed killing someone, but he cut off his ear, one of these soldiers. And and that impulse to do something is is what what overwhelms the need for us right now to be waiting. This is a time when you, we should be waiting and learning something. You heard the old saying, uh, don't just stand there, do something. That is a human impulse, right? But uh, there is also a divine impulse that tells us don't just do something, stand there. When you feel like you want to do something, stand there and listen to God. I heard a a, a Jewish uh, parable uh, last night on television and, and a, a rabbi said to another one, do you want to hear God laugh? Tell him about your plans. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty cute. Yep, our plans run ahead of God's plans. We need to be waiting and listening for his plans not outlining ours and then telling him to get on board. Waiting. Waiting, ever since that first period of waiting, is part of the church's DNA. It wasn't just about waiting for that first Pentecostal Holy Spirit outpouring, but it's part of who we are. Look, right from the Psalms in the Old Testament, prayer is seen as waiting on God. Psalm 27, profound. Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Be strong like Peter and take your sword and go out and cut off an ear. No, be strong by waiting. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, 7. Be still be before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And then in the New Testament, in the book of James, James says, be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Wait, be patient. And patient, patience comes from waiting. 
it becomes waiting internalized. Waiting may be forced on us by circumstances, but patience is the quality of spirit, the character that we develop from waiting. In fact, in the New Testament lists of the gifts of God's grace to those who believe in him, patience is one of those grace gifts. What was happening with those early believers in the between the times that Jesus was actually with them, talking to them and teaching them, what were they doing? Well, they were interacting with each other. And I kind of uh, wrote down five things that I think they were doing while they were waiting. First, they were huddling. The best word I could think for it. They, they, they had common concerns and, and they needed each other. So they found ways to be together. And we need to do that, even if we can't do it physically. We need to do it by phone calls, by uh, face chats, by uh, uh, all the contacts, writing cards, all the ways in which we can reassure one, one another. And we need to, secondly, share our fears. We need to not be heroes all the time. But waiting gives us a chance to be vulnerable and to be helpless because waiting means you can't do anything right now. And we can talk to one another about those fears. And then waiting also for the early church gave them a chance to compare notes on Jesus. Did you notice how they did that? They talked about Jesus. Do you remember when he said this, when he did that? And, and that was important. Well, we also have the opportunity to compare notes on Jesus during this time. See how he's caring for us and how he's helping us to grow in this situation. And then there's a wonderful thing I thought about that waiting uh, does for us. It, it, it cr creates a, a family of us. It really does. When we're struggling and waiting, uh, sometimes we're too busy to be a family, but now we can be a family. We're not overwhelmed by activities all the time. Some of the things we can't do, probably a blessing we can't. Because now we have to think about each other, care about each other, be a family. And the other thing that's interesting uh, is that during these early days, the church was uh, developing a leadership pattern. And who were the ones who would become the leaders of the church for the next few decades, emerged during that time. That's an interesting thing because I believe right today at our church, that's happening. I've seen some people, some people, I, I talk, talked to someone the other day, I said, you're becoming a pastor because they were reaching out to people they'd missed. And, and some are putting themselves in the gap and they're showing uh, a love for young people in a practical way and, and helping in the corners of the church to make sure nobody's left out. So all these things happen during uh, waiting. And for the church, for the early church, this was a quiet time when they could develop, in a sense, a lifestyle of waiting, a lifestyle of waiting, even in the face of persecution and uncertainty, a lifestyle of waiting. The word wait is not in either of these texts, but they're written 
by the Apostle Paul of the time when the church was being persecuted and Paul himself was facing imprisonment. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right. Let us not get impatient, for we will reap at the harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all. And, and it sounds like he's talking about little things. Let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul wrote, Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Does the peace of God come when we finish, finish the great conquest for, for, for him in kingdom building? No, the peace of God comes when we're quiet, when we pray and have supplication and share our requests with him and realize that we don't have to worry. It comes from a lifestyle of waiting in faith. Now, John's gospel it approaches everything a little differently. And John has a series of chapters toward the end of his gospel. Uh, chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, which are known as the upper room discourses because they take place in an upper room where Jesus shares things with his disciples and then prays for them. And uh, in these upper room discourses, there are some wonderful things that Jesus teaches his disciples as he prepares them for the time when he will ascend into heaven. And I'd like to just read something from John chapter 15. It is about, he is the vine and we are the branches. Now I want you to think about one word in here. It's the word abide. And, and I'm going to read it, and you count while I'm reading. Verse 4. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. Did you count the word abide? I counted 11 times in seven verses. Do you think Jesus wants that to be the main thought we have here? So what does this mean? Abide, you know, we get our word 
abode, a home we live in, and so forth. But it doesn't come from that root. The root for abide is just the word meno, which is the word behind our word remain. So the word abide means just remain. It means stay. It means wait. It doesn't mean accomplish a lot. It means don't do anything. It means just stay where you are. Now Jesus here in one of his final teachings is trying to persuade his disciples to relax and to rest in his love. Just wait, just wait. Well, how long, how long do we have to wait? Oh my, Psalm 13, oh, you can feel this. Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So there are times when it's not just abiding, it's painful to wait. And, and, and there are times we have all been through when we say, how long? How long can this go on? How long can I take this? I believe God gives us lessons in our lives to prepare us for the how long times. For me, uh, it was poison ivy. So I loved the out of doors. When springtime came and I was a kid of seven, eight, nine, I couldn't wait to get out into the woods. And I was no sooner in the woods than I had my first case of poison ivy. And through the summer, I was pretty much dealing with poison ivy. And I just learned, I went home, I, I, I could feel it. I could feel it in my body even before it started uh, in a rash. And then the itch came and there was a swelling. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry I went out there. I should have known better. I'm, I'm going to do it next week again because that's the way I'm built. But I learned, I learned so much through poison ivy. I learned that it was finite. I learned that there was a pattern. I learned that there was always a lesson and there was always growth and maturity that came when I overcame. And you know, with poison ivy, there always comes a time when it's not gonna spread anymore. The rash is down, the swelling is down, the itching, instead of being that fierce itching that drives you crazy, it's like a teasing itching and it, it's just the aftermath. So, oh, I can scratch now. Hey, that feels good. So that's kind of uh, enjoying the aftermath of waiting. Well, the Lord gives us what we can take and gives it to us for our growth. It's not just churches, but what about you personally? What place does waiting have in your life? Prayer, prayer is learning to wait. Do you wait on the Lord in prayer or, or do you just impatiently ask him to bless your plans? Then there's your life journey. You know, we, we want to do it right. Our career, our marriage, our kids, or whatever our Christian ministry is, but you know, your life journey has been a lot of fits and starts, and there's a lot of bad 
turns in the road along the way and failures and a lot to regret. But look, your life journey is about long term, what the Lord is doing with you. And, and the, the waiting is more important than the spurts of energy. What he's building is for eternity. And sometimes we have to wait and wait and wait to see the fruit of the tiny little acts of love that we do patiently. In your life, are you developing an abiding lifestyle, a lifestyle of just staying? Are, are you seeing the patience, grace gift, established, flourishing more and more in your life? At the end of the play, waiting for Godot, those two guys are still standing there next to the bedraggled tree. They're still waiting. That's why this play is so sad. But you know, I know, I know Samuel Beckett wasn't trying to get across a Christian message. But there's some Christians who say, what in the world does that tree mean? Could that tree, even though Beckett didn't imply it, didn't intend it, could that tree really symbolize the cross of Christ? And could it be that all the while these guys were standing there waiting for Godot, 50 years of grumbling, anxiety, frustration, that during that waiting, that God was there all along, all through those years of waiting, all through your darkest times. Could it be that God was at work in you all that time? And that all you have to do is open your eyes and see and embrace waiting as a blessing from God an abiding assurance of his gracious love. The newborn church is a waiting church, and the newborn you is a waiting you. As always, we'd like to invite you for this season to join us online at altadenabaptist.org public YouTube page every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. for remote worship. All events are suspended right now, but if you need prayer, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. Again, we pray God's blessings on you this week.